morning, church. My pleasure to invite you to turn to your Bibles, to the book of Philemon. And in case you think I misspoke, like my ch- one of my children uh, did last night as we were studying this book, not Philippians, Philemon. There is a book called Philemon in your Bible. You'll find that on page 1000 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. Um, if you, uh, it's, of course, a short book, as you perhaps know. If you find the book of Hebrews, if you go right to the beginning of Hebrews, you will find the book of Philemon. And so uh, I trust God will bless us as we consider his word from this little book this morning. So uh, I'll tell you what, it's, you can see it's a very short book. It's just 25 verses. And though we, we're only going to do the first seven verses this morning, I think only the first seven verses will be on the screen. I thought it'd be fun just for, just for a lark. We'll read the whole book this morning. Does that sound okay? Yep. Okay. Uh, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't care if it sounds okay. We'll, we'll so here we are, uh, Philemon chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, here now. The word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your very own self. Yes, brother, I I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. Thankful for the opportunity to study it. I do pray that you would help me to preach your word rightly this morning and clearly this morning so that we might more accurately, more earnestly, more faithfully see the glory of Jesus Christ and find our encouragement in his love and power to forgive 
and to live in community with one another in a way that is worthy of the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the uh, mid to late 17th century that a tinker, uh, a man who fixed pots, came to faith in Christ. His name was John Bunyan. You've heard of John Bunyan, I trust. Uh, soon thereafter, coming to Christ, Bunyan began to preach the gospel. And his preaching was so well received that uh, many began to ask Bunyan to come preach at their congregations. Well, Bunyan was preaching, as a, a Baptist preacher, by the way, in a time when England had no monarchy there in the mid-17th century. The monarch was in exile, Charles II living in Paris, but it was in 1660 that Charles II returned to England and the monarchy uh, was uh, reinstituted. And so whatever freedom of religion that they had when there was no monarch was gone once the king had returned. And at that point in 1660, Anglican, let me try that again one more time, Anglicanism was strictly enforced. It was illegal to be a Baptist, certainly illegal to be a Baptist preacher. It was on November 12th in 1660 that Bunyan gathered with a handful of people to preach to them the word out in the field, actually. And when he arrived, he found the Christians there to be particularly uh, tense, not, not very warm and welcoming. And he began to ask them what's the matter, until one said, we have been warned that if you are to preach, you will be arrested. We should, we should all just go home. Bunyan replied, by no means. I will not have the meaning dismissed for this. Come, be of good cheer. Let us not be daunted. Our course is good. We do not need to be ashamed of it. To preach God's word is so good a work that we shall be rewarded even if we suffer for it. And so Bunyan began to preach. And within minutes, the, the service was interrupted. Bunyan was bound and arrested. And as he was literally dragged away from the congregation, he referred to 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe it is, or perhaps chapter 2, of having to suffer for Christ, not for doing wrong, but for following him. It was just a few weeks later that Bunyan was brought on trial. The 32-year-old Baptist preacher stood before the magistrate of unlawfully preaching the God's word. The magistrate fully expected Bunyan to relent and to give up his preaching. And Bunyan was steadfast instead. He ex explained that he was simply seeking to honor Christ by declaring his truth. He was simply doing what he felt God had called him to do. And he concluded by saying to preach uh, to God's people, the gospel is a benefit to them and to others. At this point, the magistrate lost his temper and, and yelled at Bunyan that he would break the neck of his Baptist meanings. Bunyan quietly replied, it may be so. As the trial continued, Bunyan remained steadfast, and therefore he was committed to Bedford jail, found guilty of unlawful preaching there in 1660, and he was imprisoned where he would spend the next 12 years for preaching the gospel. Pastor Mark Dever, who shares this story, asks this question I thought was interesting. How would you respond if you lost 12 of them? If you were imprisoned for 12 years, he has four girls, by the way, all of them young, all going to grow up without their daddy now, wife's going to struggle without him. How, how would you handle that situation? And in particular, uh, not because you've committed some heinous crime, but simply because you wanted to teach and preach God's word. I'll be honest, I get annoyed if I lose 12 hours. In fact, I don't even like to lose 12 minutes. 12 years seems pretty stunning to me. I wonder if Bunyan struggled with those questions. Certainly I think I would. 
I think what made it perhaps even more difficult for Bunyan is he could have left whenever he wanted. All he had to simply do was sign a paper saying he would not preach the gospel anymore and he could go home to his family. Certainly that would be a great temptation to me, I'm sad to say. I would think, well, certainly other men can preach, right? I'm not the only qualified men to preach. God, God will raise up other men. After all, my, my girls are on their own. I need to get home to my girls. And if it certainly wasn't a, a relenting spirit, perhaps a bitter spirit would come. Again, Mark Dever says, bitterness could have achieved what imprisonment never could have, truly stealing those 12 years from Bunyan. Well, Bunyan, once again, uh, tossed aside any idea of bitterness. And instead, perhaps you know, used those 12 years to uh, bless and serve God's people. His biographer writes, Bunyan was cast into jail and there spent 12 years that have blessed mankind ever since. For it was during those years, Bunyan wrote one of the most amazing books ever produced, you know it, of course, Pilgrim's Progress. A decision by Bunyan, he continues, to be free would have impoverished us all. God in his providence moved in a mysterious way to overrule what we would see as a tragedy of Bunyan's circumstances to our eternal good. Well, I'll tell you, John Bunyan was not the first to walk this path of productivity while imprisoned. Apostle Paul, as you know, was also in prison for preaching the gospel. Likewise, could have chosen to be free if he gave up the preaching of the gospel, if he remained quiet. But of course, if Paul did that, made that deal, we would be without the book of Ephesians, and the book of Philippians, and the book of Colossians, and even the book of Philemon. Now, it's perhaps that last book that you might think, well, that wouldn't be much of a loss at all. Right? I mean, Philemon is not something that uh, perhaps you... You've spent so much time in or heard uh, much preaching on. I will tell you, after meditating on it for about the last two weeks and studying it, I have found a great delight in it, even as I'm incredibly intimidated to preach it, to be honest. So let me welcome you, by the way, to the book of Philemon. Uh, here it is, Paul's shortest book that he ever wrote. I don't know if you uh, recognize how the New Testament was structured or even care, to be honest, but uh, Paul wrote 13 books, 13 letters, right? And uh, they are all grouped together, you know that? And they, they're grouped in two different collections. The first nine letters are letters to churches. The next four letters are letters to individuals. So we have two collections of Paul's letters together. Now they're ordered not chronologically, but they're actually ordered in length. So we start with Romans, the first collection. That's the longest of Paul's letter. We go all the way to 2 Thessalonians, the shortest of his letters to churches. And then we go to the second collection, his four letters to individuals. We start with 1 Timothy, uh, which is his longest letter to individuals. And we've come there to Philemon now the shortest letter that he wrote to an individual and the shortest letter that he uh, wrote uh, at all. It's just 25 verses as you've seen there. And so I assume our series, uh, this series in Philemon, we should be done by Christmas, shouldn't we? Okay. Uh, <laughs> it is, I, I think perhaps, even as I've, I've been working through it, it is, I wonder if it is the most neglected book in the New Testament. You might make an argument for second or third John, um, but it is, it is neglected. And I think perhaps one of the reasons why it's neglected is you'll find no propositional truth in Philemon. He'll never come to a point and says, we believe this, or we know this to be true, right? There's no like truth statements, nor is there any application. There's no, hey, do this or don't do that. It's, it's just like a personal letter to a friend. I like how one person describes Philemon when he says, reading Philemon is like coming into the middle of a movie and having to catch up on who the characters are and what's happened and then having to leave before the end, okay? And that's what, kind of what we're, that's the work that is cut out for us. And uh, even as I studied it and I found great joy in it, as I've already mentioned, I am somewhat clueless 
on how to preach it. And that will become obvious to you in just a moment. Um, let me give you the background. I think it will be helpful. It's one of the reasons why I read the whole book. Maybe you could kind of catch the, the, the background. There are three main characters, if you will. Um, perhaps the chief character is a man named Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave who stole from his master, Philemon, and ran for it. He ends up in Rome, presumably hoping to disappear amongst the crowds and the anonymity in Rome. There, he goes to Rome to start a new life, and a new life he receives, though not the one that he expected. So this fugitive runs into a Roman prisoner named Paul, and Paul tells him about Jesus, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. Totally transformed. He becomes selfless and helpful and sacrificial. And yet something is amiss in Onesimus' life, and that's he is unreconciled to his master, Philemon. And so Paul just happens to have an opportunity to write a letter to the church in Colossians, in Colossae. And we saw last time, remember we finished Colossians, we saw in chapter 4 he's sending Tychicus with the letter, the, the, the letter to, of Colossians to this church. And so he takes this short opportunity, this opportunity rather, to write this short letter uh, of, to Onesimus' master, Philemon. And he decides he's going to send Philemon back to his master with this letter. We see this in Colossians 4 and verse 9. Now, I don't know if you could imagine what that scene must have been like. Maybe, maybe they showed up when church was gathering in Philemon's home. And in walks Onesimus, this runaway slave, this fugitive, this thief. And he comes there. And you imagine perhaps the, the awkwardness of the gasp of the gathered congregation. And, and in he walks right up to his master. And he holds out this sealed letter. And Philemon takes the letter and breaks the seal. And he reads, it's from Paul. And he looks at his slave and says, you know Paul? And he continues on to read, and Paul begins to say, I need you to take Onesimus back, but not as a slave, but as your brother. And I, I just listen, the Bible is better than Netflix, okay? I think this is incredible. This is extraordinary. Like, what happened? How did Philemon respond? As Paul is arguing that you will be reconciled to your brother. I really think that's the theme of the book of Philemon. The best that I could gather together that the gospel changes how Christians deal with each other. It leads us to forgive one another. I, I think in the three or four sermons I'll preach on Philemon, it's just going to be one sermon after another really on forgiveness. After, Paul, after all, Paul wrote in the companion book Colossians that we should forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. We should forbear with one another. We need to endure one another. Well, Philemon is kind of like a case study on how those virtues are actually lived out. In fact, there's some debate as to why this letter made it into the Bible at all. I mean, Paul must have wrote hundreds of personal letters, maybe thousands. There's no grand theology here. There's no instructions on how the church is to be organized or run. Why, why do they keep it? Why do they put it in the Bible? Well, it seems to be because it is this incredibly helpful guide on how Christianity is really lived out. Not about being religious. Not about our duty. Not about seeking some spiritual experience. It's a tract, as one put it, on how the Christian life is lived within the Christian community. In particular, on how to forgive. Have you ever forgiven someone who didn't deserve it? If so, Philemon is for you. Have you ever refused to forgive someone who didn't deserve it? Well, I will tell you, Philemon is for you. Um, and so here we are in the book of Philemon. The first seven verses, you notice 
the situation's not even brought up. He's going to ask Philemon to forgive Onesimus, but not yet. First, he'll lay a foundation. As we see things about Philemon and his church and his friendship with Paul, that would encourage him to reconcile. And so this morning, if you want help in forgiveness, consider what I would call a foundation to forgiveness. Six foundation stones. First of all, you'll see that Paul explains that we should consider examples of sacrifice. Consider examples of sacrifice. For he begins in verse 1, Paul, prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So he introduces Timothy, who always seems to be at Paul's side. And then he mentions himself, of course. But you notice how he mentions himself, not Paul, an apostle, which he usually does, but he actually says Paul, a prisoner, a prisoner. It's the only time in the 13 letters Paul would write that he would begin by saying Paul, a prisoner. I don't know if you heard it as we read through it. He continually refers back to his imprisonment for Christ. Verse 9, verse 13, verse 23, he brings this up again. He's bringing up the fact that he has been shackled in Rome out of his commitment to the gospel, his commitment to Jesus. And I think he's doing so because this should have an impact on Philemon. I think Paul, as we know, Paul's going to appeal on behalf of Onesimus, but the appeal is not made from the lounge chair at the poolside. The appeal is not made from a comfortable chair in a library. This appeal is actually made from prison. And I wonder, when you are asked to do hard things for your faith, like forgiving someone, it might be good to realize you're not alone in, amongst God's people in doing hard things. It might be helpful to look off your own hurt and to consider the sufferings of your brothers and sisters in Christ. For instance, if you were to, this week to receive a letter from a Christian in Afghanistan and uh, she's asking you to make a small sacrifice, I think her sacrifice of following Jesus in that land might make your willingness to make, uh, make a sacrifice far easier. And so perhaps considering the examples of sacrifice would help us. Secondly, you see that we should live in Christ's community. Paul continues, doesn't he, now uh, writing to whom the letter is addressed. He says there, verse 1, to Philemon, our beloved uh, fellow worker. But then he goes on to introduce some others, doesn't he? And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. So it's a personal letter to Philemon, but he's not addressed alone. We don't know who Aphia is, but most suggest that it's probably his wife. And if it is his wife, she probably has a, a particular interest on what to do with this return household slave. Archippus is a, another individual that we're introduced to. We actually saw him in the book of Colossians. If you remember, Archippus was the guy that Paul said, hey, make sure Archippus is doing what God has told him to do. And so here he's brought up as a fellow soldier. He most likely is the man serving in a pastoral role at this church now that their pastor Epaphras has, been, has gone to Rome to seek out Paul and has been arrested, as you'll see at the end of this letter. And so he addresses to Philemon, perhaps Philemon's wife, Philemon's pastor. And then lastly, which I find most interesting, he says, and to the church in your house. Okay, the church that meets in your house. So his house, Philemon's house, is where the church gathers for worship. I'll just tell you, by the way, I think I mentioned this last week even, that for the first 200 years of the church, the church did not have a church building. The first church building we know of is in the year two, built in the year 232 in eastern Syria, of all places. And so what we see here is just reminded, aren't we, that the church isn't defined by its building, right? The church is rather defined by the fact that it gathers to worship. A congregation congregates, right? We come together to worship God. And so uh, I, I said this 
simply to remind us that though we love this building, we're thankful for this building, even though we seem to be outgrowing this building, we've been using this building for 100 years, I hope it serves us for another 100 more years, but let's just recognize this building is not us. Okay? Right? We, 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 this is why we begin our services, we'll wel not welcome you to church, but welcome you to the gathering of the church. Right? We, we are the church. The church, what, what does the word church mean? It means an assembly. And so we assemble to sing and to pray and, we, and we, to hear from God and to read his word and to participate in his ordinances. But we don't need a building to do so. Right? So it's meeting in this guy's house. And, and here Paul addresses the entire church, not just Philemon. Now we know it's a personal letter because as we read on, the pronouns are going to be in the singular. He's going to be addressing specifically Philemon. Right? He has total legal jurisdiction on what to do in this place. But why then does he address the church? Right? Why is Paul taking this personal private matter and making sure the whole congregation is aware of it? I think he expects the church to help out Philemon in this situation. I think he expects the church, hopes the church will help him do what is right. Now, I don't know if you would like for, a, a, for the church to overhear your own personal issues. I don't know if that would be fun for you. If I got up and read a letter about you and what's going on in your life and how you need to do this and that. Right? Maybe you resent that. After all, isn't religious, religion supposed to be private? Or so we're told. It seems to me that Paul's of a different mind. He assumed that Christians were going to live in community and the church is going to help us live out our faith. And so the decision is Philemon's, but the expectation is he's going to receive and consider the counsel of those that he's sharing life with. The church is an incredibly helpful guide for us in the Christian life. I don't know if you heard recently about the pastor that was caught plagiarizing. Right? He was caught by a very well-read member of the congregation. And, the, and the, 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 this member of the congregation was so annoyed that he, he began to actually call out the pastor and, and somewhat publicly. And he was preaching. And, 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 and the man actually said to somebody next to him and somewhat loudly, that sounds like Spurgeon. And then he said something else, and the man said, well, that, that sounds like Packer. And then he said something else, and the man said, that sounds like Piper. And the pastor got so annoyed, he looked at the man and says, why don't you shut up? And the man says, well, now that sounds like him. Right? <laughs> All right, and just in case, let me be haste, say, if you, that story sounds like something Alistair Begg would say, you're exactly right, that's where I heard it from. So don't say, well, that sounds like Begg, okay? But that, I'm giving him acknowledgement. But you see... What, what he's telling us is that the church is given to help us, even in personal matters. I think we're quite often blind to various elements of the decisions we have to make. I think the counsel for committed Christians is therefore incredibly important. I think this is one of 100 reasons to join a local church. This is why we practice church membership. We want to make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into, why I would encourage you to take our Exploring Church Membership class that begins in two weeks during our Sunday school hour. But it's not, it's not a matter of joining this church. I would encourage you, if you're not a member of a church, join a local church. Don't be a bee floating from flower to flower to flower, just taking and taking and taking. Join. And join in such a way that you're not anonymous on Sunday morning, but you're committed to be a regular part of the church life. You're being known and you're knowing others, whether that's through community group or Sunday school or men's ministry or women's ministry or the choir or, or our senior ministry or our, our young uh, singles ministry. Right? You need to be building those relationships because they will help you grow in Christ-likeness. And you will, be, you will be able to help others as well. 
I, w- I would suggest you build those relationships before you need them. You'll find help when you must forgive. Well, thirdly, the third uh, foundation stone is that we should remember the grace in which we receive. Paul, pretty typically here, says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's uh, here praying for Philemon that, uh, that uh, he would receive, continue to receive God's grace and peace, even as he has already received it through Christ. Of course, this is the, the foundation of the gospel, this, the foundation of Christianity, that we have received grace from God through Jesus Christ, and therefore we have peace with him. Right? We get that grace because Jesus died in our place as a substitute. He took the penalty from a holy God that was due to our sin, and he put it on Jesus, and Jesus bore God's wrath, and then three days later he rose from the dead, and now he says, God will forgive you if you yield your life to me in faith as your Savior and Lord. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian. I have this question for you. Have you done anything that you believe puts you in the need of God's forgiveness? That's probably a better way to say that. Uh, Do you think you've done anything that requires God's forgiveness? Should God have to forgive you for anything in your life? We Christians believe he should. He should have to because we have done so many things that require it. My Christian brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to remember the forgiveness in which you have received in order to find strength to forgive others. I think this is well um, testified to by a Lebanese Christian named Mary. Uh, She was living in a Christian village in the 1980s when the Muslims were rampaging her country and a Muslim militia came through her village and Mary began to run for it. She stumbled and fell and when she stood up, a young man about the age of 20 put a gun to her head and demanded, I quote him, renounce the cross or die. Mary said to him, I will die as a Christian. And so he shot her. And then with his knife, he carved a cross in her body as it lay there in the dirt. The next day, the militia came through to cart out those they had killed. And amazingly, they found Mary still alive. And even more amazingly, perhaps, they made a stretcher for her and brought her to the hospital. It was a short time after that that the the head of World Vision met with Mary, who was now paralyzed, the bullet having severed her spine. And and they spoke at length at their confusion, why these people would one day try to kill you and then the next day take you to the hospital so you could recover. Never quite figured that out. But he asked her this question, how do you feel about the person who pulled the trigger, the person that will put put you in a wheelchair for the rest of your life? She simply said, I have forgiven him. Mary, how in the world can you forgive him, he asked. I forgave him because my God has forgiven me. It's as simple as that. Forgiveness means absorbing the wrong, doesn't it? It's hard to do. I only know one place where I could find power to forgive those who don't deserve it. It's in the fact that God, through Christ, has forgiven me at unbelievable cost to himself. And I think to the degree in which you understand your sin against God and how he has acted to forgive you, you're going to find, the more you cherish that, the more you delight in that, the more you live out of that, you're going to find you have power to forgive the much smaller sins that have been done against you, like being shot in the neck. I, I think this is what she's teaching us, that Christ's gospel gives us power. I think that's what Paul is alluding to, that your willingness to forgive has everything to do with whether you have been forgiven by God. If, therefore, if you have an inability to forgive someone, it might be because you don't know God's forgiveness. 
or because at least you don't appreciate it. After all, what did Jesus teach us to pray? Father, uh, forgive us our trespasses even as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those who know themselves to be forgiven, will they forgive others. Fourth, you see that we should give thanks that we love others. Give thanks that you love others. Know what Paul says here in verse 4. I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers. Uh, I, I love this. Uh, Paul does this often, doesn't he? But you can tell that Paul loves this man, doesn't he? He loves Philemon. Uh, and and uh, we're, we'll discover later in this letter that Philemon is one of the few members of the church that Paul actually knows personally. Uh, and, and he says, well, whenever I think of you, Philemon, whenever you come to mind, I, I think my instinct is to thank God for you, right? Like, like when I say Marco, you think polo, right? Don't you? When I say ping, you think pong. When I say base, you think ball. When I say Dodgers, you think champions, right? I mean, these are just instincts, right? This just comes to you, okay? When Paul says, when I think Philemon, the instinct is I thank God. I thank God for you whenever I think of you. I don't know if you ever noticed how much Paul loves to build people up, right? He, he, uh, he's constantly just loving and gushing upon people. Uh, it, that seems very rare in our day. It seems like great people in our day, the celebrities, the business leaders, the politicians, the rest, um, don't so much enjoy building up those around them. Paul, uh, Paul missed that memo, I think. Uh, he loves to build up those in his inner circle. Uh, I re- remember in Acts 20 when Paul gathers the Ephesian elders there. Uh, and he knows this will be the last time he sees them on the beach. And, and he gives them his final instructions. We're told that Paul cried in their presence. Not once, not twice, but three different times. Such was his love for these individuals. I think Paul was a man who loves people and had no problem expressing it. He says, it was clear that he loves this man. I, I thank God for you. And he tells us why in verse 5. Because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. So I'm hearing this information about you undoubtedly from his pastor Epaphras, who's with Paul now. And, and he hears about his faith. And I think the object of the faith here is the Lord Jesus. And that faith in the Lord Jesus inspires his love for the saints. Right? So I, I, I trust Jesus and therefore I love the, my brothers. After all, Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by your voting record. Right? No, he didn't say that, did he? The world will know you are my disciples by... Uh, how you dress or the way you educate your children. No, he didn't say that. Uh, the world will know you're my disciples by the books you read and the pastors you follow. No, he didn't say that. The world will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. So faith, our, my trust in Jesus is invisible. You can't see it, but you can see my love for each other. And so what Jesus is teaching is that the fruit of faith in Jesus is love for other Christians. So if, therefore, Christian, if you have faith in Jesus... You will love other Christians. Or if I could put it negatively, if you don't love other Christians, that's because you don't have a real faith in Jesus. That love of Jesus, love for others, is the fruit of that faith. And so if you have it, you will see that love expressed towards others. And I I think we should thank God for it. I think that's what Paul's doing. He's not saying, hey, well done, Philemon. You love the brothers and sisters in the faith. He says, I thank God that you do so. This is the the fruit of the spirit. This is what God is doing in his life, that God is working this in him. He gives thanks. I thank God you're you're loving. And I, I wonder, to the degree in which you thank God for the love you have for other people, I don't know if that ever occurs to you. That you feel love towards others, you act in love, you, you might want to thank God for that. To the degree in which you do so, I think it'll probably become easier to love those who hurt you. After all, the Bible tells us, love 
keeps no record of wrongs. And so I think we should give thanks that you love others. I find this interesting for another reason, if I could just have about a three-minute footnote here. Um, do you find it strange that Paul is gushing over this man who owns slaves? That's interesting, isn't it? Philemon's a slave owner. And I, I don't know if you're surprised, I kind of am, that he, he has so many nice things to say about a man who owns other people. I think in our day, uh, it seems to me, increasingly, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that our day would require us to dismiss Philemon from, from any virtue. Like we can't consider Philemon's virtue. We can't praise his accomplishments. There's nothing good that can or should be said about this man um, because of this particular sin. I think in a word, what we would do today is we would cancel him. Right? And if he had a school named after him or there was a plaque on the wall, we would change the name of the school. We would, we would take the plaque down because there's nothing good and praiseworthy about him because of this particular issue. It, it seems Paul's of a different mind, doesn't it? At least as I read it. Paul is able to say about a man who owns slaves, which I think, and we'll talk about this next time, it is evil in this day. You shouldn't own people. It's a sin I, well, in, in our history, but in, in this day as well. I don't think you should do that. I'm going to argue that next time we're in Philemon. At the same time, Paul says, I thank God for you. I, at the same time, Paul says, man, you have a reputation to love other people. How's that possible? I think it's possible because Christianity doesn't counsel us out because of our sin. Right? And I don't think we need to counsel other people out because of their sin. Even when they hurt us, we don't need to counsel them out. I don't think Philemon is this moral monster right, to be erased. I think he's a sinful man, just like you and just like me. After all, the what is it we say, the, the best of men are men at best. Philemon is a forgiven sinner. Does he need to grow? Yeah, he does. Does he need to repent? Yes, absolutely, he does. But should we counsel him? Uh, I think to counsel him is to counsel the very work of God in him. And I, I, to be honest, I, for one, am not interested in doing so. So, footnote ended. Uh, number five, uh, pursue Christian growth. Pursue Christian growth. Note what he says in here in verse six. And I pray, his con prayer continues, says, and he keeps praying, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, to be honest, I, I've read that, uh, that verse about a hundred times. I've diagrammed it. I've analyzed it. And I still, I'm not sure what he's saying. Um, I find, I mean, just re, I mean, just listen to that. Can you, you tell, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I mean, there is a lot in there, and it is very confusing. I was actually relieved when I read a number of commentaries, and each one agrees that this is the hardest verse in the entire book to translate. And we're not quite sure how to do it. Because it sounds like what he's saying is when you go tell non-believers about Jesus, that is, you share your faith, that's what we would say, uh, and, uh, you grow as a Christian. Now, I think that's true. I think when we do share our faith, we grow as a Christian. But uh, if you look at different translations, they're all over the place. I, I find the NA, uh, New American Standard, the NASB, interesting. It, says, it actually says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith. So that's different, isn't it? We think sharing your faith is telling non-Christians about our faith. But the fellowship of faith is something that we have amongst Christians. And I think that's mo most likely what Paul is talking about here. He's not praying for Philemon's evangelistic success. He's praying for something to happen when he fellowships with other Christians in the faith. So that faith sharing is not proclaiming the gospel to an unbeliever, but it's fellowship uh, of other Christians in, in the same faith. We're sharing that same faith. 
I think the NIV uh, does the best job here. And by the way, that's a sentence I've never said in my life, and I'll deny that I said it afterwards, okay? But here we go. The NIV, uh, if you will, first time only, uh, I pray that your partnership, here it is, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. I think that's a little more clear. So what's Paul doing here? I believe he's saying, Philemon, you, you have a partnership, a fellowship in the Christian faith. Will you extend that to Onesimus? And if you extend that fellowship to Onesimus, you will gain a deeper understanding of all the good that we have in Christ. Right? So if you go and you welcome him, you forgive him, you're going to get a greater understanding of what God has done for you. You're going to know Jesus more if you welcome this man into your life. You're going to know Jesus better if you uh, forgive him as Christ has forgiven you. And I would, I would there just draw out this principle that when you forgive others, the blessing comes to you. When you forgive others, you are actually blessed because you gain a deeper understanding of what Christ has done for you. I think this is beautifully illustrated in the life of Corey Ten Boon, uh, that Dutch Christian uh, who uh, you're well aware of was arrested by the Nazi German, uh, Germans in 1944 for uh, harboring and sheltering Jews. And she and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was known as the concentration camp of no return. And of course her sister Betsy would not. Thankfully Corey did. She was eventually released when the war was over. And she spent her remaining days encouraging Christians to forgive as they have been forgiven. She just had a ministry of forgiveness. And yet that ministry, that exhortation, was put to a very powerful test as she finishes her autobiography writing. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensburg. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there before me. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pained, blanched face. He came up to me after the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had spoke so often on the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing not the slightest spark of warmth or charity, and so I again breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our own forgiveness any more than it is our own goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, 
he gives, along with the command, the love itself. I wonder, would you like a deeper understanding of Christ's love? Would you like a deeper experience of it? That I would encourage you to forgive, as Christ has called us. For when you forgive, the blessing comes to you. But it also comes to others, as we look to lastly, that we should desire to be a blessing. It seems like this is what Paul's arguing here in verse 7, for when he says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So here he's referring to the benefit that others have received from Philemon. Paul says, read it carefully, Paul says, I have joy and I have comfort because you are refreshing others. Your ministry to others is a blessing to me. Right? And he's refreshing, right? This this idea of giving people rest and recharge. Of course, Christ has said, and we've already talked about this this morning, I think it was Pastor Josh, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, Philemon is a living example of Christ's ministry. He's blessing Paul because he's providing refreshment for other people. And I think we need refreshment. We need rest. I need it, certainly. You need it, I believe. I think we all need it. We all have trials in this world and and difficulties and troubles. We all have fears and anxieties from within. And I I think, therefore, we need refreshing. So where can we find refreshing in this world of woe? Well, we see it right here. It's in each other. It's in the church that Christ provides the rest through the relationships that we have through our faith family. The the church is to be an oasis for us in this dry and weary land. As one explained, like Noah's dove going out from the ark, you can fly all over this world, but you will nowhere find rest like in the gospel community. How, How sad is it then that when you find exhausted and weary Christians, quite often they feel like the solution uh, the solution to their trouble is actually to stay away from God's people. This dry and arid and dehydrating spirit day by day. And the place that we need to be is actually the place the flesh seems to tell us not to go. That we are to be amongst God's people to find the refreshment which God intends for us to have. How, in other words, how is God to minister to you? How is God to provide rest to you if we cut ourselves off from his body? which continues his ministry here. And so, so here today, I encourage you, if you're, if you're dry, if you're weary, if you're in need of refreshment, this is the place to be. Draw from the fellowship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Draw from them. Receive their care and their love as God seems to love you through them. His love doesn't just float down from heaven and hit you on the couch. It does through his people here upon this earth. And you should not only seek that refreshment, but you should seek to, to give it. This is a ministry we should give ourselves to. I love this. He says, man, you are refreshing other people. I mean, you ask people, how are you serving in the church? I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, you know, I just want to be a source of refreshment. That, that's my ministry. I'm a refresher, okay? Right? We can start a refresher ministry. You can have a name tag that says, talk to me for refreshment. I don't know. But th- I think this is a beautiful picture of what we should be doing towards one another. In fact, I think Paul is doing this over and over and over again, refreshing people through his letters, through his encouragement, through his exhortations. Certainly my family received that as we uh, went on our sabbatical. We had a stack of letters from you all. And, and every day we seemed to read one or two or three and we laughed and we cried. And certainly we felt recharged and loved. It's this wonderful and powerful ministry from God's people of refreshing one another. 
And I think what Paul is saying, he's about to get to say, hey, hey, you who are the refresher in Colossae, will you extend that ministry to Onesimus? You're going to give it to him too? You're going to serve him because I'll tell you, of all the people in your church right now, the one who is most weary and most scared and most troubled is the man who just handed you the letter. Will you forgive him? Will you refresh him? And if you do, can you imagine the blessing that would be to the entire church? Can you imagine the joy and the comfort the entire church would receive if these two guys are reconciled? That's what Paul seems to say. I'm buying all this joy over here in Rome knowing that you're refreshing all these guys in Colossae. I mean, how encouraging is it? How joy-giving is it when we see brothers and sisters who are unreconciled begin to forgive one another and come back together? And I think forgiveness uh, in the church is a great blessing. We see this in the life of John Bunyan as we close our time together this morning. Bunyan, who was in prison for those 12 years, was released from prison in 1675. Uh, soon thereafter became the pastor of the, Be the Baptist Church in Bedford. It was in uh, 13 years into his pastoral ministry, 1688, that he was asked by a neighbor um, to help him with his father. See, his neighbor was unreconciled to his dad. They were at odds. And he asked Bunyan if he might kind of play the role of Paul here and help bring us together. The problem was his father lived a long, long way away from Bedford. And yet Bunyan just so happened had just accepted a preaching invitation to preach in London, which was much closer to his father. And so he went down a day early. And, and from London, Bunyan rode actually 50 miles by horseback to meet with this man's father. And there he extended uh, his, the, the, uh, the son's desire to be reconciled, shared his son's repentance, um, sought the father's forgiveness for his son, and he, he succeeded. The man's heart was softened after many, many years, and he forgave his son and was reconciled to him. It was while Bunyan was riding back to London, back the 50 miles, that he was caught in a torrential rain. He wasn't feeling very well after that ride when he arrived. He wasn't feeling so hot the next morning when he was to preach. He preached anyways, of course, but he continued to grow sicker. And it was on August 31st, 1688, Bunyan, who had contracted pneumonia, died. He wrote in Pilgrim's Progress, perhaps you, you know this line, his master was not willing for him to be away from him any longer. I think that was true of Bunyan. God said, I, I don't want to be away from you anymore. And so he called him home. But John Bunyan spent his last days bringing about forgiveness within the Christian community. In fact, that sermon, this very last sermon he preached, um, was that sermon he preached in London. You can look it up online if you like. I did so this week. The very end of the ser Bunyan's last sermon if you are the children of God, he preached, live together lovingly. If the world quarrel with you, it is no matter, right? And that, by the way, said the man who quarreled with the world and spent 12 years in prison for it. So it doesn't matter. But it is sad if you quarrel together. Dost thou see a man who is a fellow Christian? Love him, love him. Right? This is, say, this man and I must go to heaven together one day. Serve one another, do good for one another, and if any wronged you, pray to God to right you and love the brother. Our Father, we're thankful for 
that encouragement and the encouragement, of course, that your word is to us. We pray that we would take it to heart. Forgiveness is difficult, Father. I know there is deep hurt for many. And yet, are we not to be unlike the world and like you, our God? Would we not all say our God is a chief among things, a forgiving God? And we are the beneficiaries of it. Can we not, not find power there? to extend that to those who you would call. Father, we pray for uh, those here this morning who aren't Christians. We pray that you would even now allow them to know that forgiveness is offered to them through Christ, that Jesus indeed died for sinners to pay their punishment, rose from the dead, and now stands before us, not only as the crucified Savior, but the resurrected Lord, willing to forgive all who would turn their life over to him in faith. May our non-Christian friends here do so even now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.